This is the AMA Los Angeles Podcast. Welcome to the AMA Los Angeles Podcast. I'm Joel Metzger. Today's podcast is a panel recorded live at General Assembly in Santa Monica. The topic is launching a brand. Your moderator is Philip Rebentish, president of AMA Los Angeles, and the panel will introduce themselves. So let's go ahead and join the conversation already in progress. All right, so as you know, our topic tonight is launching a brand. Um, this really is a 30,000-foot view. We're not going to get into uh, you know, real um, detailed things tonight because of, of limited time. Um, and to start, what I'd like to do is, you know, the traditional have each panelist take about 30 seconds, introduce yourself, and uh, we'll go from there. Helen. Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Helen. I'm the SVP of marketing at Omaze. Omaze is an online fundraising platform where we essentially raise money for nonprofits by um, giving people the chance to win once-in-a-lifetime experiences. So if you want to crush things in a tank with Arnold Schwarzenegger or have John Legend sing at your wedding, or right now you can be best friends with uh, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Tom Brady, uh, all you have to do is go to Amaze, donate $10 or $20 for your chance to win, and then the net proceeds go to the nonprofit. Excellent. Thank you. Trevor. Uh, my name is Trevor Jones. I am the CEO and founder of Flex Watches. Uh, we make watches that give back. Each color represents a different cause that we donate 10% to. Um, we started about uh, six, just about six years ago now, um, and we were just featured on The Profit with Marcus Limonis on CNBC. A uh, very interesting process. Um, and then uh, we're on the, we got our start on the real world about five years ago, so we've done quite a bit of TV. I'm Talia Goldstein. I'm the CEO and founder of 3-Day Rule. We are a tech-enabled, personalized matchmaking company. We are backed by IAC. They own Tinder, OkCupid, Match, and we're in seven cities. We're launching our eighth city in the next couple months. And if any of you are single, I brought a matchmaker with me. Lindsay, raise your hand. <laughs> you chat with her after, and we'll match you for free. Jason. Uh, Jason Sperling. I'm the uh, Senior Vice President and Executive Creative Director at an agency in Santa Monica called RPA, uh, where I run Honda North America. Uh, I used to uh, be the Group Creative Director on Apple. And I last year finished uh, a book that I launched uh, a page a day on Instagram called <laughs> Look at Me When I'm Talking to You. Oh, excellent. All right, let's give them a warm welcome. Thank you. So the basic idea of launching a brand is you want to get it right the first time, right? Okay, we're done here. Thank you very much for coming. That's great. Thank you. Um, what we're going to talk about tonight are the three facets of launching a brand. You're, you've got pre-launch. You've got the launch, obviously, itself. But then you also have post-launch. And so we're going to spend a fair amount of time on the pre-launch side of things because that's when the heavy lifting gets done, the launch, and then the post-launch activities. And what I'm really happy about is the fact that we have such a mix on our panel tonight. We have, um, you know, it's basically internal versus external position. And, and that gives us different perspectives, which is what we're, what we're looking for. Um, we have founder CEOs. We have someone that's working for an agency and, and an author. And then we have, we have Helen that's on the internal marketing side of things. So I'm actually you know, very pleased about that. So um, my first question is actually for Jason. Um, so from the agency perspective, yes, you're first, sir. 
Go ahead. What's the first thing that goes through your head when developing a brand narrative or even a pitch for a narrative with a client? Well, I, I think there's a few things. I wish there was one thing that, that went through my head. I, th I think it's many, many variables. Uh, what you, you really, I think you have to delve into the brand's DNA and, and figure out what's true about the brand. Um, you have to look at the competitive landscape and see what is going to differentiate you from uh, the many, many competitors that are out there. Um, and, and then you have to figure out, you know, what's the best expression of that uh, and, and what's going to be believable, true to, true to the audience. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so my next question is for Helen. So when you were with eHarmony and you were launching in the UK and Australia, um, what was your priority in terms of that um, narrative or branding strategy? And how did that differ now that you're working in US eHarmony? Uh, yeah, it was super interesting for me. I think, um, you know, launching a brand is, is really tough in its own right. Taking mm -hmm. a brand that is already established and trying to think through how do you make that feel authentic and true to the, a brand that was established 10 years ago in the US, but feel relevant to the UK and Australia. Right. And so for me, that was uh, spending a lot of time in the US office to really understand what is the eHarmony brand, what makes it so special. You know, when eHarmony launched in the US, it launched 10 years prior with the co-founder very central to that vision. Right. Um, you know, everyone here will probably still remember those TV commercials with Dr. <laughs> Warren in them. And so, you have, you, you don't have that. And so in the UK and Australia, it was about how do I replicate what was great about this brand? How do I make sure that we take that and bring it to life in a way that feels right culturally in these two markets? And because it is very different. Right. Um, and then in this instance, how do you do that in a way that just feels fresh? Because you're coming, you're bringing an online dating brand into a market that is already incredibly competitive with uh, local sites, with you know the Match.com and the IAC right. that really own the market. So how do you how do you figure out what the value proposition is so that you you can really win and you have to win pretty quickly? So question: uh, How much latitude did you have in each of those offices versus directives from the home office? Yeah. The eHarmony brand is incredibly special. It's actually, I mean, it's why I loved it. And so there was no movement in terms of eHarmony is about long-term relationships and marriage. It's not about dating. And it really is, as a brand, about the science of matchmaking and love. And so those are the two things that had to stay, but they're also the two things that make made the brand special and unique. And so... Uh, I was very, very happy to, to keep those. The pushback was more on things like TV creative. We okay. didn't want to make the move of just dubbing that. Um, right, right. Felt that that didn't feel right in market. And actually on the product side, uh, recognizing that we needed to match people in a slightly different way. And right. so building out those algorithms locally was really important to us. And then being able to, to feed that information back into all of our marketing and communication that this had been tailored for this market. For that market. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. So um, my next question is for um, Trevor and Talia. So as founders and CEOs, um, 
What was your initial process for de developing your own company brand? And, you know, this is, this is your thing, so what, what did you guys do for your brand when you launched? Talia. It was quite a long process. It ends up being harder than you think. We had to figure out where do we fit um, on the spectrum in dating. So we had mass market dating sites, and then there was millionaire matchmaker, and we fit right in the middle. So we couldn't be like either of those. And what we did was we created a list of everything that we wanted other people to see when they look at our site. We wanted it to be aspirational. We wanted it to be humble. We wanted it to be trustworthy, and we worked with a designer. We gave them all of the information, and they came back with three different options. And we did quite a few focus groups to see what you look at this website, what do you see? And ultimately, we picked one. They were quite different. One was very luxurious with gold, and one was a little more mass market. And we ended up with one. That's what we started with. And then we did a lot of testing. We tested different photos. We tested different fonts. and then. After a few months, we came to what, what we have today. Wow. Trevor? Um, we started, it was a little bit different of a start for us. We, it was just a couple of friends, and we saw these colorful watches. And it was kind of like a swatch thing at the time. Um, I don't even remember what the brand was. And we were inspired by Tom's. And at the time, my mom was fighting cancer. And so we ended up losing her to breast cancer about four years ago now. Um, but that was really the inspiration behind Flex early on was how can we do something that hasn't been done, which is you know, what everybody would like to do, right? Um, and, make it, and make it our own and have it actually mean something and not just be another watch. And so um, we counted colors and we ended up with 10, so we were like, let's go with uh, 10 colors um, and then the next step was to match those with causes. And so now there were 10 colors, 10 causes, and it just made sense to do 10%. And so we donate 10% of sales to each uh, specific cause that matches the color of their watch. It's like, this goes to clean water. And so for us, it was, as far as positioning, I mean, I think I was 21 at the time, or must have been 22, 23, but... We were just out of college, and we were still doing the uh, college thing and going and partying in San Diego and all that stuff because we were just out of San Diego <laughs> State. Um, so our, our network was, was kind of like the college kids. And so we were so connected to um, these students that were still in school that we would go to the library, right? We would go talk to kids and tell them what we were doing, and we kind of started the campus rep pro program from there. And our campus rep program is uh, just over 2,000 kids now, and we've had that literally since the very beginning. It didn't start as that, obviously. Um, but as, as far as positioning, it was, we didn't really have plans. We just kind of ran with it. And as, as things progressed week by week, we kind of fell into this and that. And we just used what was around us, really. We used uh, our current network without having to spend any real money. And so yeah, I think, I think you just kind of let things happen and just get feedback. And that was what we did because we were in that space. Now, the hardest part is marketing to, uh, you know, if we were going to be something else, I wouldn't know how to market at that time to someone that was uh, 30 years old, 40 years old. So it was easy for us to create a product that was 
in our demographic and sell to that demographic being promoted by that same demographic. So a little easier for us. Okay, so did everyone catch the, the they didn't spend very much money part? And that he's tw he was 23. When right, he exactly, exactly. So um, Jason, this next question's for you. Um, what's in a name, right? Um, so do you identify the target demographic and then construct the name identity or vice versa? Uh, I, I was reading online and Fast Company had this quote that said, you can't fake it if an innovation has no clear or compelling relevance to people's lives. So from the agency side of things, do you start by identifying how it affects people's needs, or is there a right or wrong answer here? Well, I mean, you can't, you can't necessarily blanket advertising. I mean, you, you need to figure out where does it fit into people's lives and why. Right. But at the same time, there's just so much stuff out there, and people uh, are really, really jaded when it comes to marketing. Uh, they they figured out how to sort of shut it out of their lives for the most part. Uh, I think there's a considerable backlash now uh, when they when they do hate something or it or it feels inauthentic. Uh, and so when you're dealing with a big brand uh, and you're spending lots of their money, you, you really want to make sure that uh, you're you're talking to the the target audience in ways that that matter to them. And it's, it's not necessarily reflecting their lives and, and telling them, hey, this is who we think you are and this is how you live your life in, in say, a Honda you know, CRV. Uh, but, it's, but it's developing uh, creative that they can relate to, that they'll love, that they'll you know, connect with, uh, want to share. Um, I really, uh, I'm, I'm one of those people in advertising who's, who's pretty self-loathing. I, I hate, I hate advertising. I hate <laughs> we make things that, that people don't hold in high regard for the most part. And, and so I'm always trying to figure out ways to, uh, transcend that, that, um, I think, um, reflexive, uh, sort of dislike for advertising. Um, so for me, it's, it's really... How do, we, how do we make really authentic, uh, but, but truly creative experiences that, that transcend, I think, what, what people normally uh, expect to see for, for brands? And um, it doesn't always feel like, oh my God, this feels like a millennial commercial. Um, you know, I think some of the best ideas out there actually appeal to much broader audiences. It doesn't mean playing a song in a commercial that is, you know, top 10 on the, the sort of hits chart, sometimes it's introducing them to a song from, from the 50s, uh, because that, that truly um, uh, is just what captures the spirit of something, and uh, it, it's universal, you know, um, as far as... And staying consistent to what the brand's premise is, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to hog the mic. I could talk a while about sort of Honda and, and what we stand for and why, uh, but, uh, but, but yeah, having consistency across all those channels because e everything is so fragmented now, you don't know where someone is going to, to wander into one of your messages and you want to make sure that no matter where they wander into it, uh, number one, you want them to stay, but given the fact that there's that, uh, that, that instinct for flight, you want to make sure that the ones they do stay for feel like they connect together and um, because that's where you build your equity, your money in the bank is by, by that sort of 
recall of, of all those messages connecting together. Excellent, thank you. So my next question is for Helen. So um, I wanna talk a little bit about development of the brand positioning statement, right? Um, the focus that goes into that. You know, where does the brand fit in? So, and this is, I wanna start with Helen, but it's open to, to anyone, but um, what are the primary elements that go into developing that position statement? Yeah, I mean, every time I've, I have <laughs> sat down to do the exercise of what does this brand mean? Um, it's, it's always a little different depending on the brand. It's very different if there are founders who are actively involved because often you'll say, well, who is the founder and what do they want this to be? You know, what, and you'll, you'll end up, I think, getting to a place often much quicker because the brand comes to life because of their vision, who they are, who, what their values are, that you immediately start to say, well, this is how we're going to build the brand. It's a little harder if, you know, this is, well, we started this company because we think this category is really interesting, and so you need, you need to dig a little deeper. Um, for me, though, always go through the same process, which is start with purpose, and I know a lot of people talk about <laughs> purpose and the why and Simon Sinek and all of that stuff, um, but I really believe it. I believe that you need to have something that that is down on paper that is the soul of your of your brand it's it's who you are and then from that point for me it's going through an exercise of what is the need that that we serve here what are the benefits that we provide as a brand uh, who's the audience we're talking to and i think that's really really important when you start out to know like Eventually, everyone wants to hit everybody, but you have to start somewhere and work your way out. And so, for me, you end up with a brand positioning that clearly articulates the need, the benefit that you provide, the audience that you are targeting, mm -hmm. and the, the thing that you believe makes you stand out from the crowd. And if... And, then it becomes a bit of an exercise of this sounds really long and not very, <laughs> not very catchy. Uh, but if you can have those elements defined, I think from there you can build out the positioning. Um, I will say that I, I think value proposition is sometimes a little overrated. Um, and so I like, uh, particularly you know, out of Maze, we went through a long a long process to build out the brand strategy and we landed at a very clear purpose, a very clear mission and then brand values. And we, we didn't necessarily feel like we needed to have like that killer statement that somehow has managed to combine all of those items. Uh, and I think some people spend too long on that. Right. Um, and for me, miss the point of just be really clear on what is the need, what is the benefit you provide, why should people believe that you provide that benefit, and then what's the ultimate vision or purpose or goal for, for what you're trying to achieve. Well, excellent. Um, so Talia and Trevor, um, can you tell us a little about some of the key, key timing elements prior to your launch? Well, I'm just gonna say one thing on that. Oh yeah, please, please do, yeah. I think a very important piece, especially as you're really starting out, is to make sure that every single employee completely understands the mission and backs you and believes everything that you believe because they're the brand ambassadors and they're representing your company and you need to make sure everybody's in alignment. So 
If there's somebody that comes on that is excellent at Facebook ads, but you don't think that they're really um, completely believing your mission, it's not worth it. Right now, we only have 30 employees, but I promise you every single one is authentic in the mission. You can start the next question. <laughs> so yeah, what were some key timing elements prior to your launch? Some key... Yeah, just uh, what were some of the priorities that you wanted to make? I mean, I know you talked a little bit about how you had this network thing, but was there, did you have anything planned out, calendared? Okay, we want to make sure we have this done by this day. We want to have this done by this day. Or was it truly organic where you were just rolling with the flow? No, no, we had it. Well, there, everything has a deadline and a, <laughs> and, a, and a date that you miss, but um, <laughs> early on, the... My stress is, because I took this on, and there was a few of us early on, but um, was the partnerships. And we, no one knows who we are, because we have these watches, and, and there was a, hey, do we partner with charities, or do we kind of just let it be this unknown, and we're giving back to a cause, but do we want to you know, pigeonhole ourselves so we have to, maybe this organization's a little bit smaller, and the marketing efforts from them won't be as powerful as these guys, right? So partnering with all those different charities was tough because each and every one, I mean, we had 10, and it doesn't, I mean, it's not that big of a deal, but we're just kids and we're each one of these, these are amazing organizations doing such awesome things and we have to have them all. We, we can't have one watch that just doesn't have a charity. And so we didn't know which color was which at the time. And, and so once you see it now, uh, go on your phones right now and look, but once you see it now, it, it all makes sense where it's like, oh, okay, that color does match that. It's in that, uh, you know, clean water should be blue or white. And, and it, those things all make sense. But early on, it wasn't, it wasn't very easy. And that was definitely one of our early stresses. Um, I would say we kind of had our launch, but we had a second real launch. And that was when the real world uh, aired. And that was, we filmed all summer in 2011. And then in October, the show was airing, and we did a deal with Viacom, and we spent a ton of money that we didn't have. We had to get an investor that literally, from his account to Viacom's account, with just hopes and prayers that they were going to show the right stuff. And so my guy at Viacom was like, yeah, you know, you have to do, you got to do this deal. We have too much footage of you guys. It's going to be awesome. And we... To this day, I, I think to myself, what if I didn't do that deal? Would they have still aired it? Because we spent a lot of money early on, and it didn't matter after the fact. But we didn't know what they were going to show on and what uh, episode it was going to be on. So that was like a real launch, was when The Real World was airing in October 2011. And it was kind of like our, it was a year after we had started. And it was like our, here we go. And of course, our website crashed. All, all the marketing efforts that we had set up were just, it was just chaos because we had a small team. And so a lot of the explosions that we've had, including the profit, have been we're kind of trucking along and then explosion. And, you know, how do you staff up? Do you staff up before and just hope that it's going to work or, right. or just wait and play it by ear? So that's the toughest part is, is, is HR and good people on your team before. Yeah, we've got a good HR sponsor here. <laughs> Try not. Hi. We actually have a very similar story. So we 
we needed a lot of people. We were running a dating site. It doesn't work if you just have 10 people. And so what we did was we went out every single night of the week and we started throwing events. Our first event was in Santa Monica at a bar called South for, with 20 people. And then the next event we had 300 and then 600. We were taking over these massive hotels all over Los Angeles and that's really how we got the word out. And we essentially did a soft launch here. But in a similar story, we ended up going on Shark Tank and when it was airing, we had no website, it wasn't ready yet, so we ended up working around the clock to make sure that it was ready for that date. Shark Tank aired, and we had another 10,000 people sign up, and our website crashed as well, but that was when we really did our big launch. So I'm curious for both of you, after these huge spikes, did it change your messaging for your brand? I mean, those are completely two, two, well, two completely different worlds now, so did it affect how you were messaging? Yeah, so over the last, I keep mentioning this, we started five years ago, five, six years ago, but in those five, six years, we've changed our messaging, which is the absolute worst thing you can do as a brand. Uh, going off the path and not being consistent, like, if I could start it again, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't make that mistake, but just so you know, I mean, we started as uh, this cause-related brand, and we were giving back to 10 different charities, and we had this feel-good lifestyle, and then somewhere in the middle from there till now, um, we had a partnership with Tyga. Um, if you don't know, he's a rapper, and so a couple things like that, which totally put us in a different direction. And I, for me, doing the creative, it's a branding nightmare, because now I'm trying to take this very risque image and still, you know, I'm trying to find that middle ground where it makes sense. And so it's tough with causes because I feel like you can't go too risque and it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal until you're, you know, trying to do a photo shoot and it's like, she's not wearing that much clothing. She's like a bikini is kind of scary. You know, you don't, how far do you go? So uh, brand consistency, is everything, and I don't even remember the question. Where, where but that was, was awesome. <laughs> you nailed it, that was great. Talia, do you wanna? You know, I think that's pretty inevitable when you're doing a startup that you're going to pivot, and it is really important that you're flexible enough to pivot. The reason, we started Three Day Roller with a dating blog. That's why we have this silly name, it's from Swingers. And then it became a curated dating site, which is what aired on Shark Tank. And today we're so different. We're this personalized matchmaking company. So we kept the name throughout. That was really the only thing that stayed consistent, but we also pivoted as well. It's a yeah. lot of work, but I think you have to be really flexible as a startup. Okay. So I wanna, speaking of pivot, I wanna move into advertising and messaging for a little bit. So. You know, we've got the basis, we've got tagline creation, campaign creation, beta testing, um, and media strategy. So, and this is for, this is for the whole panel. Um, how early should you start this kind of thing before you launch? I mean, yes, you've got to create a tagline, you're creating the brand identity, but is there any rule of thumb? And is it possible to start too early on your tagline creation while you're doing the brand development? So, Jason, can we start with you on that? I mean, I, I keep thinking of this because you guys are talking about small businesses and, and, and the sort of need for sort of every dollar and every, every customer to sort of matter. matter. And, and here I am, I'm talking about, you know, a big brand uh, where, you know, we, we sort of, you know, develop really brand affinity more than we do, you know, sell cars. Uh, and and that's, that is a, you know, a 
you know, a billion dollar business for, for Honda. But uh, a, a year ago when I, when I launched a book and I realized, you know what, I, I have to treat this as a small brand uh, that, that no one uh, is going to find, you know, deep within an e-bookstore. It's a, it's a marketing book. It's very niche and, uh, you know, I, I didn't want it to be for, all for naught. And so I really had to figure out a way to, to really um, market something with very little money. Um, and uh, I, I realized uh, that the book itself was, was sort of a page a day animated by an animation, uh, or sorry, anchored by an animation. And uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a lot of work. Uh, it was, um, I, I really had to, and I, I, I talked about it at, at South by Southwest, but the importance of preheating the oven and, and really making sure that so much of, of you know, you, you don't really put it in out there or in there uh, until you, you've developed a lot of the, the pieces. And so uh, really in, in anticipation of the launch, I developed a ton of marketing material. Uh, and we're talking really um, homegrown stuff. Uh, you, you know, it was, um, uh, it was, it was search, it was uh, social posts, it was um, my, I knew my, my own network within my social channels was a lot of marketing people. And so uh, I, I'm not above um, uh, selling myself. And so I did uh, a song for a share and if you, you can see in the book, uh, there's an animated version of me. And I, I went ahead and anybody that shared the book within their uh, social network, I sang them a personal song. Um, I, I'm not, a, I'll whore myself. Are you good? It takes. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then what I did is I, I, I did pivot. Uh, so I know this isn't part of the thing, but uh, I, I pivoted um, realizing that I had sort of, after all the PR that, that came out, that I had sort of reached a maximum sort of growth. And I went ahead and started to include some, some big leaders in the marketing industry. Uh, Tor Myron, who was Global Chief Creative Officer at, at Gray. Uh, Scott Tratner, Executive uh, Creative Director at Facebook. Uh, someone who ran Sony Pictures. And I started to include their sort of thoughts within the book. Uh, within the animation portion in order not also they sort of brought value to it but also because I wanted to tap within into their networks and so really it was a cheap way of sort of advertising beyond uh, what I could do or pay for um, so small business marketing right so Helen how do you feel about that is there can you start too early with Developing the tagline. I mean, do you really have to have to have that? I mean, it seems to make sense that you really need to have a sense of that brand before you're going to develop a tagline that sums that up in a sentence. So, can you weigh in on that? Yeah, it's interesting. As Jason was talking, I was thinking about the same thing, which is at eHarmony we would go through, you know, a six-month process if anyone dared to think, let's change the tagline. That was a you know, a big big deal. Um, as you work at smaller, st smaller companies, startups, I have to be honest, like I, I don't know how important a tagline is. <laughs> like I think right. it's really, really critical. I agree. That you, yeah. that you know, again, you know the need you're serving, you've built a product that you guys believe in, that your messaging is consistent. I think though, you can have a consistent theme, personality, tone, and be testing multiple different messages. And for me, that would be my advice to anybody. There is, 
there is a way for you to still have consistent a consistent message and a consistency of this is what this is the product we're going to deliver to you and at the same time have 50 different variants of ad copy that you're testing to actually understand which one of those people are going to click on and actually convert it's hard to then quickly move that back into site copy or so you need to you need to make sure you feel like this all comes from the same suite or all feels like it's coming from the same voice, one place one right. place um, but I wouldn't lose time over tagline because it's crazy to me whenever we do a b tests I'm always like oh a is gonna win for sure a is gonna win right and d wins and you're like what the hell like <laughs> and we don't know and I, and I think the best way to test that is literally to test that. So we've got the larger picture here for you guys as founders startups. How do you, who and where do you bounce ideas off for potential taglines? Or, or what was your process for developing that? You don't have big agency resources. And again, it's not taking you six months through, to, through a committee to get something done. But what did you guys do? Um, I don't, what she was saying, I don't think it matters as much as it might seem, I think what's, like a tagline or it's a, it's a marketing campaign title. I mean, for Flex, we have like five different things. Are they, they're just kind of, they're just kind of pushes. As long as they're pulled from the same pull or pool um, and, it, and, it, and it's consistent, that's what matters. I, I, I think it, people get burnt out if that's what's on every single thing that we have. I think good content that makes sense that's from that pool uh, is is a little bit more important um, than just getting your you know tagline out there um, but yeah content and testing it's like the worst answer to anything ever it's like we have to test it and it's like i ask every web guy that i talk to or facebook marketing guy it's like what's what do you think let's just do what's going to perform better i like the look of that and like you said, what you thought might work doesn't always work. Like I'll see a design that I just hate and that converts three times better than this amazing, beautiful piece, but that's just my opinion. I think that design is so good, but maybe it doesn't matter to most people. Maybe it doesn't convert and it's not just colors, it's like the whole thing. Maybe what I'm looking at is just too clean and it's minimal or whatever. And this design over here, with maybe the same messaging or maybe not, but it just gets more clicks. It's just testing that stuff as well, which is the worst. Talia? We used our members. You know, we did so many focus groups and they were really excited to be involved, especially in the beginning. They felt like they were um, helping us a lot with the startup. So we would send them surveys all the time. We would get groups together. We'd get them pizza and beer and show them different photos and taglines and we really involved the members which I found to be very helpful and again what I thought was going to win didn't end up winning and I had to be okay with that. Okay. Yeah, I don't I don't think you know everything needs to be a, a Nike just do it uh, out there in the world. You know, Honda globally is is the power of dreams and um, it, it's more important that we use that as sort of a demarcation point or, or at least a starting point with the way we think than it is communicating those words uh, because I think as, as long as you come away with the, this, the, the philosophy uh, you know being exemplified I think that's even more important although you know recently we, we had sort of the clients 
going, uh, questioning, because th- we do so much work across so many different channels and, and, and right. you know, levels w- within the company that it's easy to lose sight of what is our brand and, and how are we communicating it. And so they need, um, you know, it's as much for consumers as it is for internally. They, they almost need to, to, to use that as a, as a measuring stick. You know, does that feel like the power of dreams? Does that feel like the power of dreams? And so whether we audibilize it or not, whether we visualize it, it it's just, it's more important that we embody it um, at the end of the day. Okay, so social influencers. Use them during pre-launch, after launch. Do you guys have any thoughts about that? When's the best time to bring them in? I think you, I think once you're, fully ready websites ready to go your ads are set your message is clear i i wouldn't i mean because that's the, that's money spent right that's that's influencers that are going to be representing your brand so anything that's not a hundred percent ready to that point in my opinion is a waste of money i, I think if if they're driving i mean that's for my business right I, we're e-commerce so, so much of our business is online and we're for spending money on a on an Instagram post, for example, which is so saturated now, but some example of that, then as long as our message is clear and they're going to the right place, because all that stuff matters, what they see here, what they see here, and what they see on an uh, email sent to them after purchase, all that story matters. And if it's not consistent and finished, then where am I going? And it affects conversion rate. So all those little details, so I'd say, Definitely at the end, like when you're ready to go. I see heads nodding. Talia? I completely agree. We've actually never spent any money on social influencers, but what we've done is taken every member, every matchmaker across the country has their own handle, matched by Lindsay, matched by Brianna, and they're building their own um, expert network. So that's how we have used social influencers. We haven't spent a dime. Jason, how long you want? I mean, I, I've had, uh, social influencers have been hit and miss for me. There are some where I, I just go, why the hell are we giving these people our money uh, <laughs> and letting them control this creative message? And then it ends up, you know, their heart just isn't in uh, doing the marketing part of it. You know, they love what they do and what, what has sort of made them a personality. Uh, and then when it comes to like, hey, sell our brand, it's just, you know, they don't understand brand strategy. Uh, they don't understand, uh, you know, sort of ha- just sort of, you know, that the brand sort of wants some creative input. Right. And, and so the minute you go, mm, that doesn't feel right, they're just like, oh, you know, I usually just hit record and then I just, you know, I put it out there. Why do I have to go back and, 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 and do it again? But, I mean, there's many levels to it and we've had some that, that work. Um, it's great, I think, when it runs in tandem with a broader message. Right. Uh, social influencers alone, I think, um, you know, don't necessarily build that brand loyalty. Uh, I, I think they can certainly uh, increase exposure and audience, but um, uh, yeah. I, I, but but then again, I you know, I'm I'm not above, you know, using Ferris Bueller to to sell a CRV in a Super Bowl spot. <laughs> But, but aside from Ferris Bueller, but that's part of the risk. And you know, as I mentioned, you've got to get it right the first time, right? So you do run a little bit of a risk by bringing in a social influencer. That's, that's what I'm hearing. Yes, I, th- I think a brand runs a serious risk. And, and I would probably uh, argue against giving anyone too much creative control. I mean, 
you look at the, the sort of measures that go into uh, an agency doing advertising and all the sort of necessary, I think, back and forth and is this right and, and, and you know, are we, are we saying the right thing, showing the right thing, doing the right thing, you know, just giving the sort of reins to someone uh, doesn't necessarily feel right. But, but then again, you know, I know there are different relationships and sometimes social influencers will... And it depends on the brand. What, what is the product? Yeah. What, what are we doing here? Sure, sure. Helen? It, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything these guys have said. I think um, if you're lucky enough to not have to pay for um, <laughs> a social influencer, great. Um, but whatever you do, I would be really clear on who is your audience. Um, I think it is a very, very valid tactic to try and seed either product or a service or an idea ahead of, of launch. Right. Um, but you really don't want to be paying for that if possible because that really is high stakes otherwise. And that's whether that's a social influencer or even a celebrity, you, you really need to feel like you've got the right person. Right person, right? The brand and that the audience is going to feel connected to. And then when it comes to, you know, now money is exchanging hands, I absolutely agree. You need to wait until you really feel like you know exactly which customer is working for you, what conversion looks like, how much you can afford to pay, and then you really need to pick the influencer because um, reach does not necessarily mean engagement. And so you need to find the influencer that, that doesn't just have a ton of people liking their content, engaging with their content, but don't really feel compelled to go and buy the product that that influencer loves or to go and try the service that that influencer is talking right. about. And you're not paying on a conversion, you're paying on reach. And so right. just be really, really careful about digging in, ask them like, what other brands have you worked for? Well, like, what did that look like? You know, um, you'll get a sense pretty quickly. You know, I used to work at a fashion company that where social influencers are able to charge a huge amount of money. Right. Um, but very quickly, you can see who just has pretty cool reach and everyone likes to see their images on Instagram and who can actually sell a product. And those two things are very, very different. Excellent. So yeah. we're going to move on to the launch. Oh, sorry, Trevor. Well, just, I just wanted to close on that. You can, I feel like more than not, if, if, if all the stars aren't aligned in that collaboration, because that's what it is, if their audience, I mean, they could have 10 million reach on Instagram because that's you know, what we're all kind of used to seeing now. It's getting spammed up. And because of that, it's, it's less effective. And if their audience, because that's what matters, it's their audience, uh, the, that reach, I mean, conversions is a whole separate thing. Where like, what's the goal here and what message are they telling and who's doing what? Where's the creative coming from? Uh, like Jason was saying, it, if they could just slop together uh, a 30-second video that feels like an ad and I mean, ad, again, I mean, I mean, conversions, maybe that works because it's like so direct, but it's, it's, it might not be what you want, and then you just spent X amount of dollars or whatever uh, wasted on something that's not even your brand to an audience that's definitely not going to convert to what you're looking for. But, but I, think, I, I, I do think one thing to, to consider um, is that having a social influencer launch with, with everything you have, because I do think, and this was, this was actually a Steve Jobs quote way back in the day, uh, where he was launching the, the first Intel Mac and he was sort of waiting uh, impatiently for the, the campaign to surface. And he goes, 
where are my fucking planes and my fucking tanks? When I go out there with this thing, I want like a full on assault. Where the fuck are they? And he said, fuck a lot. Um, and, uh, and, and so I, I think to, to be able to have that become one of the many touch points so that if someone is seeing your message here and then they see a social influencer, you know, th there's just, I, I, you're, you're sort of building on your message in a really good way. And then I think too, if that, if that social influencer can, can do things in an authentic way that, that feel like it's coming from them, I mean, the fact is, is we need to sort of uh, hide the stink of an ad. Um, and if, if they're able to do it, in a way that feels like, hey, they really like this thing, or it just sort of fits into whatever they do, uh, it's so much easier than having to sort of hold something up and, and getting a tight shot of the label. Um, you know, if you can get an OK Go riding around on segways uh, coming out of the Japan Honda factory singing their video, you, you hardly know that it was sort of, you know, being funded by Honda Japan. Right. Wow. Thank you. Okay, so yes, launch. So, uh, rollout strategy. Um, I'd like to get some opinions on soft launches versus hard launches. And again, is there any right or wrong way? Does it depend on the brand? Um, what do you guys think? Talia. Well, I can talk about launching a new city and the plan, the rollout plan for that. So when we launch a new city, we hire a PR firm about a month ahead of time. They start chatting with the outlets. Then we hire our team, which is two matchmakers. Then what we do is we throw sort of a informal VIP party, and that is to get the hype up. We make it exclusive. It's a VIP invitation. It gets the buzz going. And then after that, we throw a big consumer launch party. And what we found is that strategy has worked really well for us launching a new city. We break even within a couple months. We've done that seven times now. So wow. we've sort of perfected this formula. And once you get it right one time, then you can do that to launch every city. Anybody else? Soft versus hard launches? Yeah, I mean, uh, so I'm thinking back to my days at eHarmony and launching in, in the UK and Australia, and I, I think we would, I would probably say we did a soft launch and then a hard launch, but what I really mean is we didn't really do the first launch very well, and so right. we came back for a second bite, and, and oh, wow. I think, um, you know, in, in that world it was, we, and Talia knows a lot about this, like when you're working at a dating site, you need people, right? You, otherwise there's no one to match. And so um, our soft launch was really um, pretty aggressively starting to market through display media, through some social, but not too much SEO, just um, really trying to build the database of people to be able to match. And we did one kind of PR piece of outreach, which was a big kind of eHarmony's uh, CEO flies in to UK and talks to a big, big media publication and talks about how successful this company is in the US. And, you know, we got a great piece of coverage and then everything just kind of died and we realized that we're only bringing in people because we're paying to bring in people, which is, I mean, see how many you can afford to do that. Um, but it didn't really feel like we had penetrated the market in a successful way. Um, and, and we did that both in the UK and Australia. 
Um, and so the second bite was, you know, what we need to do, more of that kind of local, very authentic outreach. And so we actually had a launch event with all of the relationship writers, um, experts in the space, in the UK you call them agony aunts, but you know, mm. people that are writing columns in Cosmo or on, you know, on TV as a, an advice columnist or expert. We got all of those people together, introduced the service to them. Uh, we actually had a couple of, of couples that had met uh, through eHarmony even though they'd met on the dot-com site, they were both, they were in either the UK or Australia. We brought the couples to show efficacy and like this really works. Um, and it wasn't until we did that that it took about, I would say, four to eight weeks for then a lot of media coverage to start to build. Right. Um, and that's when we really started to see us you know, kind of creating more traction, I would say. Um, so that ended up being a soft and a hard launch. Um, but I, I think the main thing when you're launching is know that you can get another bite at the apple if you need it. Um, and so... I How did that go over internally, though? Was, was there any friction with that decision? I mean... Um, I don't know. I think people... Because it was just new to everybody. Like, it was, you know, it's a great place to work, a great culture, and so this is a learning exercise for everybody. And if anyone is to say, I, I, would, I would push back on anyone that says, hey, you got your launch wrong. <laughs> like, because the whole point is launch is about learning, you know? Yeah. And so I think that uh, this idea that you'll have this moment and that moment will suddenly break through. I'm not sure it exists. Um, and so I would just say, like, move forward with the way you think this needs to be done. Just know you're going to get a... If it doesn't work, you're going to get a second bite. You may not get 10, you know, <laughs> but um, I think it's possible for you to learn and iterate, learn and iterate, because by de facto, you're not reaching your entire population, you know. So I was actually going to bring up Apple, and I swear to God, this is what I wrote. Apple is the reigning master of live event launches, worldwide free media event, right? Um, but are they appropriate for everything? And I think we've kind of covered that. But, um, so I'm going to move on from that. But I, w I want to ask a little bit on the science side of marketing and, and, and also how this relates to you too, because it's a different type of measurement. But is there a general rule regarding customer, customer acquisition percentage? Um, what constitutes success or not. So, Jason, um, is there a gold standard for ROI on the launch? It really it depends on what the, the goal of the launch is, and, and there are many, many goals. Uh, it can be as high as, uh, um, you know, um, it can be, I guess it could be as low as selling a certain amount of units of cars, uh, but but then there's there's also the sort of uh, you know they look at ACE metrics, uh, which is sort of measuring uh, consumer sentiment about advertising and intent to buy based on advertising. You know, with 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 car advertising, you're, you're doing ads that uh, we we call it people that are sort of high funnel and low funnel. 
people that are very near sort of wanting to purchase a car and then people that it's a year, two, three years off. And so you're, you're trying, you're, you're, you're doing different uh, sort of uh, levels of advertising. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, we also do very highly targeted advertising uh, where we're looking for, um, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, getting, getting the clicks on things and uh, clicking through uh, to broader experiences. Uh, and then, you know, I, th I think we just did a thing on Facebook where we took a, uh, a, a two-minute video about a, a guy who, um, who drives a ridgeline, who finds a lost dog. Uh, and it was a, a tender little uh, two-minute-plus-video that we ended up cutting up in nine different pieces that we ended up uh, um, feeding into different uh, people's Facebook feeds, uh, depending on their interests. And then we measured sort of, uh, uh, um, I guess, engagement and, and, and sentiment based on that, and then we ultimately served up uh, other pieces uh, so it, it, it varies. I'm, I'm sure it's, it's a different story for you guys, but... Uh, yeah, I'm curious, Natalia. So what was, what was your standard for success? What, what kind of goals were you trying to, to meet? Well, when we're launching a new city, for the most part, we're looking for brand awareness. Nobody knows who we are, so it's just getting the word out and starting the buzz. We've tested a lot of different marketing strategies for us. We include PR and marketing, and for every dollar we spend, we get nine in return. So it's something that we continue to use. Um, it works better for us than SEO. You know, we're just becoming profitable on Facebook ads. So it's really important to test a little bit of money on all these different channels because you might be surprised by the one that ends up working the best. Right. Trevor? Um, yeah, I think it's, it varies product to product. And even on any product, there's probably 10 different things that you can test that you know, this campaign is specific for this, or maybe there's a campaign that's pushing three different things and all of those are considered a success, right? Uh, for us, campus reps, we want people signing up. And so if they go from, if you Google college or uh, Google campus reps, the first article that pops up on your phone is uh, USA Today college article. You click that and there's, uh, uh, you know, 20 uh, college rep programs. And so we're number three. So. I know that the traffic from that is, is people that are interested in, at least maybe a college student, or interested in campus rep programs. And so for them, I don't think that, I'm not looking for them to purchase a watch, I'm looking for them to sign up to our program. Um, and for me, that's a success. And so whether that's 2% of the people or 20%, um, it, it, it varies on what you're trying to do. And so there's that, and then we have an upsell on the site, and the upsell is what gets me excited because what we built right now is working very well and so that's you know maybe we change the price of shipping or something so that we get enough people or we want to get the conversion rate a little bit higher because I know that once they get through that process they're going to spend an extra 30 bucks on the website because it works so well so th there's just so many variants that affect everything so again it's just testing. Well and Helen you're in the philanthropic space as well I mean is, do you agree with what, what some of the stuff that, that, that Trevor's yeah, saying? Absolutely. I, I think um, it really does depend on the category you're in. It depends on what the average cost you get from your customer and the overall lifetime value for your customer. 
Uh, I know it can take a while for you, for you to be able to dig in and find that information out often. Um, at Omaze, we work on an individual campaign or experience base. So for every dollar we spend, we need to make sure we raise at least $2 in donation for the nonprofit. And so that's, that's central to all of our expenditure. Um, so I think anyone starting a business, though, the main thing I would say is, or if you're early on, try and get a relatively, even if it's a gut feel, get a gut feel for how much you think you can get from a customer in mm -hmm. the first transaction, or will they go on to make a second transaction? Can you upsell them? And then that, and work backwards, <laughs> and that's going to tell you how much you can uh, afford to acquire a customer for. Um, and then brand versus DR, I think, is really interesting. And so uh, for me, just be clear on, on how much of your budget do you, do you believe you can invest in brand building, which is very, very important, but how much of that budget needs to go to making sure you're, then you're getting that return and, and the channels you use will, uh, will differ there. But I would start off with at least thinking of that as your 70-30 split, which is 70% to, this is gonna get me a dollar back, I'm gonna right. feel really good about this. Right. And then 30 on the brand side, and, and over time you can make that switch. But what you've allowed yourself to do is really start to get, again, an understanding of how much it's costing you to acquire a customer, right. how much you're getting back from that customer, so that you can feel more comfortable moving dollars into your brand budget over time, and you haven't blown through the investment that you've got, because I think for most people, there's, there's, a lim there's a finite amount of money to begin with. And, and I'll just, just yeah. add to yeah, that. And, and I do think you need your, your things that sort of you know, drive the business and, and, and get some sort of proven results. But you know, given, given the fact that we are in, in such an environment where people are able to, to bypass things, the good thing is, is, is that you know you you've got this incredibly social uh, environment, and if you can do something, and I and I, I I say it all the time, if 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 you do something that's brave and breakthrough, and um, just feels different, uh, that 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 stops people, uh, you you really do um, open yourself up to, you know, and and we work with media companies who are always like, and you'll you'll get this you know, many impressions and, and this many people watch the show and, and whatever. But if you do something that, that creatively is really uh, different and, and innovative, um, that can grow exponentially, you know, and, and, and right. sort of beyond your wildest dreams. And so, you know, you could aim for the sort of, all right, here's what we'll get, we'll, we'll do that. But, but if, if you're willing to take a little bit of a risk, um, the returns can just be absolutely huge. And, and right. I, I've seen it on both sides. I've had risks that didn't pan out and, and things just ended up what they were. And I've had things that have gone crazy viral uh, and, and gotten beyond the, the client's wildest ex, you know, expectations. Things that costed wow. lots of money and things that you know, cost $15,000. That's great, because that actually, oh, go ahead. I would say I really yeah. agree with that. I think you're the perfect example when you're talking about, look, I had to do a deal for a TV show. We weren't sure if it was going to pan out. It was the only investment I had. I really agree that if something comes along, it's worth taking a risk. Like, because if it hits, you know, it, it will shorten that time frame. Right, right. The ramp. 
Um, and also just be thoughtful. Like, I think it's really interesting you're talking about PR being a channel that has direct return. So also be really mindful that some channels are often overlooked as being like the brand channel. So I still think you should test a lot of channels and, and be open to that, but I totally agree. About yeah, I mean, in terms of startups, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't fault someone like Dollar Shave Club, who, right. I mean, they were a little known to unknown brand, right. and, and they just- and Just purchased by Unilever for a bill. Yeah, yeah, really smart. And then Dollar Beard Club, that came and totally did the same video, same style of thing, and then, you know, viral, I mean, a lot of people saw it, I would say it went viral, not like Dollar Shave Club did, but the beard thing was just out of this world. But yeah, testing channels, uh, super important. Um, when you're starting a brand, I mean, Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff, I mean, it is so saturated now. I mean, it, it matters, right? Like, if, if it's a product or whatever, it matters. But don't post just to post, right? It's, it's, it feels like it just becomes spam, and it's like, I've fallen victim to it because I don't have content, and it's so tough to consistently have good content. And everyone says content marketing, this, that. It really is everything. It's, it's photo shoots, it's videos, and one post might take two hours to put together, but it's perfect. And maybe the engagement's just whatever because it was the time of day. And it, uh, you can't judge that off that always because that looks good and it's consistent with the message of the brand. And it all just makes sense. So it's don't post just to post. It's going to 100 people or 1,000 or whatever. It's, it's those 1,000 people are going to see that and now think, eh, I'm over it. It's, it doesn't go farther than that on, on Instagram. And Facebook reach is horrible now. So unless you have uh, spend in place, uh, your organic reach on Facebook is, is just not getting seen. We have uh, 115,000 yeah, 115,000 fans on Facebook, and I, if I don't spend any money on it, about 1,000 to 2,000 people will see that of 115,000, any post on Facebook. And so the move is just trying to hack that and, and, and bypass those horrible numbers. And there are some tricks. There's this share network that these guys that we work with, amazing marketers, and so they're part of our a part of our team now, and so they'll share it on five other people's pages, and each of these people have a half a million to a couple million, and that'll bypass that for the next couple weeks. So now our post is getting 10 to 15,000 reach, and we're not paying anything. And so there's little tricks where Facebook says, "Oh, people like this. I'll let's 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 push this out more because they're relevant." And so again, I don't remember the question, but but I like the answer. So this is actually rolled into the next section. Um, so other than the ubiquitous server crash, what can go wrong? What must be avoided? Who wants to start? I know, right? Words of wisdom. Don't, don't hire Bruce Willis to do your Super Bowl ad. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't remember that. It was that. a server crash, but, uh, and, uh, but we, we had Bruce, we, we just hired an awful star who was an awful prima donna, and he walked off set uh, of our Super Bowl ad, and um, we had to threaten to sue him before he decided to do a reshoot. Well, that was a pleasant production. Oh, yeah. That was very Okay, so uh, make sure you got the right talent, right? So what, what else could go wrong? What, what do you need to avoid the oh-my-God moment? Really? Um, you need to have people on your team. Uh, I mean, you guys talked about HR. You need to have people on your team that are 100% in 
for any type of launch or is that that's what I'm thinking is when when the chips are on the line, right? When when things are stressful, people just kind of fade out. They fade into the background when it's like you know they're not gonna maybe they don't get credit for X, Y, and Z, and it's just hey, drop this off here or we didn't ship this out. Can you make it happen? It's the little things that add up, um, and so you you need people on the team that are. 100% I'm your man because at 3 in the morning when something happens not everyone's up or awake to get that call get that text and so you need people that believe in it and care enough to get your back all right I've got one last question before we move to Q&A so other than excessive drinking what's the first thing you should do post-launch or is that too 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 the, broad Depending on, I mean, however you've, you've you done your launch. So let me put it another way. When does a sustainment campaign or regular advertising come into play after your launch? Again, is there a, a common rule, a golden rule? Is it, is it by metrics? But when does it be, start becoming not a launch anymore, but you've now kicked into a campaign? And then we'll go to Q&A. Yeah, I think, I think the reality of this this world we live in is like the very next day you're back at it like and and it never stops like every day like the the to build a great brand takes years and consistency and hard work and it's all of the the things these guys have said and it never really stops I mean I, I don't want to sound uh too <laughs> too jaded um but I like, I think the hardest thing post-launch is that moment where you just come back down to earth immediately and then you realize, like, oh, now we've just got to keep going. We've got this thing. Uh, and so I think the, the, the trick there is to not get caught out and not, not have a plan, you know, not have the day one post-big launch event or, or week one or, like, you... What is almost as part of the launch strategy should be the weeks following launch, months following launch, is everything set up. Right. It, it shouldn't be treated, in my opinion, in isolation. Okay. And I think that, that would be a mistake if you think that's it. Right. And now we can like sit back for a couple of weeks, see what happens, right. pick it up again. Um, you've just got to keep the momentum going. I, th I think it depends on whatever you're measuring, what, whatever that is, wherever that levels out. So whether it's sales, whether it's uh, downloads or opt-ins, uh, whatever that is, once it kind of goes and back to normal where you think it should be steady for the next two days, weeks, months, I mean, it's all uh, relative to what, it is, what you're working on. But I think when things kind of slow down and get steady, and then it's like whatever that next phase is, whatever that next thing is when the launch is done, it needs to go right away into hyperdrive and the email marketing, the Facebook stuff, the next, the next phase of whatever it is should be, I mean, it doesn't have to be blasted in people's faces, but for the people that are interested, give them content, give them a way to interact and be engaged, otherwise they'll drop off slowly but surely. So, I mean, that's probably one of the hardest things to do is that there's a fine line there to, to do that the right way. And it's how much is too much and they're interested, but how interested. And so you, you want to get it, make their experience as personal as possible. And that's probably the most challenging part. Oh, yeah. yeah I, 
think keeping the momentum on your team is so important. So it's key to celebrate the small wins. You know, you have this big launch and the adrenaline's going, but you really need everyone to feel that for the next 100 members and to really celebrate those small wins so everybody's involved on your team and that will just get the momentum to keep going. Jason? Well, from a marketing perspective, I think number one, I think he's having a post-mortem and figuring out what do we do right, what do we do wrong, how do we change it. I think making sure like you said, I think letting your team know that they did a great job. I mean, at the end of the day, we're we're only as good as as some of the brilliant minds that are coming up with this stuff. And um, and and the sort of employer part of me uh, knows that the minute some really great work gets out there, uh, some phone calls start to happen to some of my top talent. Um, and then I think too, uh, and I'm a, I'm a huge believer in PR and 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 pushing that. Um, that wait. So what I was going to say is. Uh, I think it's really important to listen um, because I think there's there's a real potential for a pivot moment or to capitalize on something, whether it's good or whether it's bad. I think there's the potential to actually add on to uh, what you've launched uh, based on what people are saying, what someone does. Um, there, there really is potentially another creative moment embedded in there somewhere. Thank you all very much. Let's give it a nice warm uh, thank you to our panel. Thank you. Now, we are marketers, and so before we move to q and I'm going to ask everybody to take out their mobile phone and do a quick survey for us. So open up your browser of choice. Please go to amasurvey.com. It's going to take about 30 seconds, maybe 35, but it's a very quick. So I'm going to just, you know, look at my watch. Trevor, I told you I was a watch guy. Absolutely. So. Um, let's take just a couple seconds. Um, during that time, I want to give a shout out to Joel Metzger of Icebox, Icebox Logic, who is recording this um, uh, panel discussion tonight. We're going to turn it into a podcast, so look for that on amalosangeles.org um, very soon. So, Joel, thank you. We appreciate it. Okay, and so what we're going to do while we're finishing up the survey, we actually have a mic up here, and Victor, if we can just um, have the mic stand, or Chris, so we can just make sure it's easy. What I'd like to do is, if you've got a question for our awesome panel, please come, over, come on over and use the mic. Um, first person always gets it going, so who's ever wants, we've got a winner. <laughs> oh, no, she's not. <laughs> This question is for Jason and uh, Talia and, of course, the rest of the panel. And uh, Jason, you mentioned that when you were dealing with your clients, you said you used the phrase self-loathing and you mentioned that you hate advertising. And then when you were ready to launch your own book, you said you were not above selling yourself. Oh, yeah. It just adds to my self-loathing. <laughs> My question to you is, as someone who has worked in the marketing field and is now ready to launch a, a new invention, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm considering whether to hire marketing talents, professionals who have done this for a living, or to do this myself. And um, the reason I'm debating is because, do I need to have the clinical approach that you utilized doing content creative work for your clients, or do, do I dive in by myself? Because nobody knows the product better than I do. 
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And you know, I, I, it's, it's, I knew I was making advertising for myself, but I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just pollution. Um, and so I really wanted to make sure that it was it was creative and 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 my whole thing is uh, and maybe it's just the envy of growing up in Los Angeles and knowing that we've got film and TV and that marketing is sort of a, a redheaded stepchild a little bit. But I'm always looking to do things that sort of permeate that pop culture bubble and, and become uh, things people want to talk about. Uh, in terms of um, marketing for your for yourself and your own company, and these guys could probably speak to it better than I can, but uh, I think um, you know it, it does help to have sort of an outsider's perspective. But at the same time, only you understand the company as well as you do. Uh, but you know, if you've got a, a very creative bent, then I think it it would be a natural uh, way for you to to. to sort of understand your company and the nuts and bolts and, and the sort of, you know, you, what you need to do and, and the, the, I mean, there's, there's so many facets of it, uh, but, but I, it, it really, it all, it all comes down to you, you need to make creative things that, that break through, uh, but you also need to understand the soul of your company. So I, I think it, it all comes down to, to you and if, if you think you can do that. Great. Jason, thank you. Next. Hi. Um, so you've all really kind of touched on this, especially in the last segment, but um, mentioning, you know, uh, about employee engagement, right? And so, you know, especially when a product fails to launch, especially when there's a kind of a stumble back moment or maybe your product is less philanthropic than, you know, general and specifically for, you know, larger brands. But how do you pick people up again? Like what are some engagement strategies for the employees who work for you as either you know founders or senior leaders mm -hmm. uh, at your organization? How do you get them back up? How do you get them believing in the brand? Um, great question, um, and that's what I feel like that happens with every company. There's going to be those downs, right? Or there's there fails, and you know it depends on how low and how bad it was. But um, even on the day to day or week to week, when something bad happens or you're late on something or there's it's, it's going to happen all the time. It's, it's, you have to be that personality. And I'm, I'm definitely, I've, I've, I've become more of the creative for my brand. And so my business partner um, is really so much better at being a, a team manager. Um, and he's, I mean, when I'm pissed off because something's not going to get somewhere on time or whatever it is, or the creative doesn't get approved, then I'm, I'm pissed. And he's, he is always so positive. It's just a personality thing. He's become that person, and so I, I, I'm probably not good for him. But he, he's, oh, he's that for our group um, and our team. And so I, I don't, I don't really know how he does it. But he's, he's just positive, and he knows that that's his role, and he'll, he'll fight back with uh, a positive thing that's happening. Like, yo, know, that doesn't matter. We just got these things. Uh, in the work, so other things that are good, even if you have to, you know, stretch and make them positive. Oh yeah, I know you want to jump in. Yeah, so. just a couple things that we do, little things. Every Monday we do shout outs and we really acknowledge everybody on the team that's doing even the um, slightest task and it keeps everybody motivated. We had a major blow. We were going towards this one thing that we thought was really gonna happen and it didn't happen last minute. And I really thought everyone was going to leave in the company, but I think I was vulnerable and I was transparent and I you know, really wanted everybody to, to 
um, tough it out and let's get to the next milestone and everybody did that and I think it was because they all believe in the mission. They, you know, it's okay if you fail but if you're all working towards the same thing, they will stick it out with you and it makes it that much more satisfying when the next thing hits. Yeah, I have to really agree with that. I think you said this earlier too, like having, having that purpose and the mission really out front and center is so important in those moments because then, and if you've hired to that, you then realize when something really doesn't go your way, you look around the room, there's just a group of people that are so determined to just get back up and try again because they've bought into the bigger idea, which is we're trying to do something that's difficult. We're trying yeah. to do something that someone else may not have done before. And like that's, that's what makes this exciting for us all. And it, like, it really hurts when it doesn't go well. But if you've, if you've hired the right people, you find like pretty quickly you get this, you can get that group together again and figure out like we're gonna we're gonna like we're gonna get this done next time, you know? And I think having that kind of leadership, having recognizing that things are not always like things are not gonna be perfect. Um, and hiring to that, like the tenacity, look for people that are driven, that just are intellectually curious so that they know often things aren't always gonna work out. I think if you can hire to that, it makes those lows, uh, you, can, you can go quick, more quickly through the lows and get people back up again. Excellent, thank you. Thank you for the question. Next, please. My question is on umbrella brand, uh, that concept. And I love the example of Virgin, which spans all these really yeah, diverse yeah. categories, everything from you know, music to intergalactic or suborbital flight. So if you're considering launching a brand or multiple multiple products that have have a common thread, but they're they're very they're, they are different categories, and there's there's overlap of audiences. How what's an approach to think about that? Because you really you know having that umbrella brand and being able to leverage that across multiple categories is is really attractive. But how would you how would you approach that from the forefront? Virgin happened over many years, starting in one category and then expanding. Did Virgin have uh, umbrella branding, or, or were they leveraging a brand that they had built through uh, their their planes that they started right. to leverage across uh, different places? You guys should probably speak to launching. Well, I uh, I think I understand your question. I, I feel like being specific is is more important. I'm just thinking from like the advertising side. Um, I don't even know how you would really push three different things in different worlds that may have different audiences. I think what Jason's saying makes more sense with Virgin or, or the usual, um, where one brand goes from you know, A to B and then they, they build that name for themselves and then they have the power to, hey, we're, this makes sense and we have this partnership and we have this product, whatever it is, we can do this now. And it, but it has to make sense. You know, that's, those are sensitive, big moves to make. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, I think if you do it verticals, you do one and you do it really well and then you ha can just do right. a second one. We made the mistake. We had an online dating site and a matchmaking company at the same time, and the messaging was so confusing. Uh, no one huh. knew where they were going, and we ultimately had to shut one of them down. So I think it's important to do a vertical, 
get it right and do the second one. Yeah, it's the, I would quickly say, it's the Amazon get books solved right, right. Vaughn. Um, like Everything. To move on to the world, <laughs> yeah. But you need a, I would really urge to have a deep understanding in one category and then leverage all of the, the goodwill you've built there to be able to extend into, into multiple categories. But if you are going to do it still, whatever this is, just make sure that you have different, different ads, different landing pages, and make that experience very specific for, uh, specific for each of them. It's still tough, but as long as that person is seeing this link from this ad to this, this experience, then you can probably make it work. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi, this message is for Trevor and Talia. Uh, I have a small startup clothing brand. I wanted to know how long did your inception process take? And then after that, how long did it take for you guys to hone in that message before you, you know, put marketing dollars behind, behind your, uh, your brand? Well, I can tell you we didn't spend any money for years. We were very scrappy. We did everything by word of mouth and getting out there. So you really don't have to spend money. I mean, we spent money probably three years into the company. And it probably took us six months to get everything going before we did our first launch. Um, Ours was interesting because we didn't spend any money early on either, and we were figuring out who we were, what our messaging was, and it made sense to us, and the hard part is making it make sense to everybody else and not leaving anything out. So we didn't spend money, and then we were kind of rare because we were building and building, and we were just, you're just kind of stagnant, you know, like even on startups. So it was like a long, soft launch after, you know, all our friends and family type stuff, and then we were on the real world. And so when that whole thing aired on MTV, it was like, I mean, it, it skyrocketed. It was just a different world. So um, I, I don't, I, I guess it's just testing. It, early on, it's playing around with different stuff and really just being real, whoever that is, and not trying to put on a, a, a different face or whatever. And I think that usually when you go that route and you're just 100% real and you know, the, the, the story will make sense and people will get behind it as long as there's no fake facade and I, I think it's important. Okay. And it's hustle. <laughs> I know for a fact that people mm. in the beginning when I was like, oh, I'm starting a matchmaking company, they're like, you're for sure gonna fail. But you just keep going and going mm. and you're always wearing your clothing and you're giving it to all your friends and it will get you far. So, so second part of that question then is, at what point did you guys feel like you had it? Like you, you, you got something going here that it was worth you know, continuing to keep on pushing through you know, all the adversity? And we'll need to be real quick. Quick answers, yeah. No, I'll do a quick break. We actually parted with Match. We were this tiny company. We had like three part-time employees and I approached a massive company and said, I have something you're missing, let's partner. And they did. And then I realized that okay. we had something. All right, thank you, sir. Can I go back to the last question really quick? Sure, sure, um, absolutely. So I was thinking, back to what Trevor said, you know, if you are really gonna do this, um, maybe what you can do, just trying to give some tangible advice, because you know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure you don't wanna just drop all two out of the three companies that you have or you're thinking about, but if you had like a bed and breakfast and that was your thing, then you use that as sort of the pheromone you bring people into your wonderful bed and breakfast site and then you happen to sell dog and cat sweaters, uh, that's your second business, that, that that's sort of embedded. 
um, but that you find one to lead with. Uh, and, and don't dilute your message, but, but certainly you don't have to ditch the other ones altogether. They just become uh, other attractions. And maybe you find that you're selling a shit ton more dog and cat sweaters, and so maybe you end up leading with that. I don't know. Well works, right? Yes, sir. My question actually is a lot of parallels with what this lady was bringing up before, but from a different direction. I'm at a, <clears throat> I'm at a membership association. We are known for a really big trade show we do at the beginning of November in Vegas. We want to really raise the profile of stuff that we do the other, one 50, the other 51 weeks of the year, and also to bring those services up and augment our brand identity so we're not just the show, we're also what we do with research, what we do with education, what we do with employment advice. Have any of you had experience really augmenting a brand's identity with these kind of lower visibility services or products, and how has that worked? We're a we're an industry association, a nonprofit. Whether it doesn't matter yeah. whether it's profit or non for profit, it's not what matters. It's that taking this taking your brand and adding something into it based on a new offering. What's the strategy like? Has been like with that. I mean, there's two things that come to my mind. One is content. If you and all those verticals can get out there and cross promote and have a voice throughout the year, I think that helps. We do a lot of little events. I don't know if that's an option for you, but if you can do smaller events throughout the year leading up to this really big event, then it might, might help. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I can add to that a little bit too. So Amaze, you know, Amaze has built the brand based on the idea of experiences. You get to donate to an experience if, and one winner you know, gets to live their dream. We've recently added a merchandising line. So it's t-shirts and that is for $25, you get a cause t-shirt. It's a straight up e-commerce proposition. And I think as we, we added that line, as we look to build, we ask ourselves what products answer the need that we are trying to meet in the market and in what we believe in. And so for us, that is, how do we make giving more fun and just easy for people to do? And so that opens you up actually to a range of different product opportunities. The question becomes then, what do you have, what do you believe you have a deep expertise in or skill set in or what would already, what would tap into the things that you're already doing so it doesn't add on a huge amount of incremental lift. So I think the advice to you there would be, as you're thinking about what's, what is the core offering we have, what are easy extensions to that that tap into skill sets we may already have in the building and that still represent to our consumer base and to our employees like a, a, a central theme. It's, it ties very much back to the overall mission and vision of the company. Great. Thank, Thank you very much. So speaking of launching a brand, AMA Los Angeles is undergoing a rebranding effort 
that new fancy logo that we all love so much is part of our, we actually did a hard launch and I'm really happy to report that we've done everything right according to the panel. So it was perfect, everything was perfect. But I want everyone to know that, that AMA Los Angeles is changing. There's a new focus on, on being part of a national organization and having the power of a national organization behind you while still having great events like this at the local level. So um, it's been great listening to everyone tonight. And I'd like to have everybody give a big thank you to our panel tonight. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And we're done. Bars open. You've been listening to the AMA Los Angeles podcast. For more information on the American Marketing Association's Los Angeles chapter and to find out about upcoming events, follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This podcast was produced by Joel Metzger and Icebox Logic.